Well, turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. And remember the, the big story of Joshua is about how God fulfills all of his kingdom promises. And then we're in this first section of Joshua 1 through 5, where we're talking about courage, the, the command to be courageous. The people in Joshua chapters 1 through 5 have not yet begun the actual process of, of conquering yet. The, the first battle has not yet been fought as we come to the end of chapter 5, but it's, it's about to be in the next chapter. In fact, if you're reading along with us in the book of Joshua, we're going to be covering Joshua 6, Joshua chapter 6, Lord willing. Uh, so if you're reading ahead, you can be reading that this week in anticipation of, of next week's sermon. But this morning we're in Joshua 5, and we're going to see ways in which God's people are, are called to participate in, in God's kingdom. It's going to be very clear that the conquering that takes place is not done in the strength of the people, but this is, this is God's victory. That's going to be very evident. There's some things that God calls on his people to do here in this chapter to, to show that it's not him enabling their kingdom, but him enabling them to participate in his kingdom. That, comes, that becomes, again, just very clear as we go through Joshua 5. And so we're going to read the chapter together this morning. And so if you're able to, you can stand with me as I read this chapter. If you need to sit down, feel free to do so. But I'm going to begin in verse 1, reading from Joshua chapter 5 in the English Standard Version. Remember chapter 4 has just ended. God had parted the Jordan and the people had, had gone through. They had placed the stones of of memory, the memorial stones, and Joshua tells the people at the end of chapter 4, this is, uh, this is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Then verse 1, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were, not, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover 
on the fourteenth day of the month, in the evening, in the plains of Jericho. And, and the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we would ask uh, again for your grace this morning as we turn to your word. We pray as we've already sung these truths from your word, as we've sung the gospel, as we've read scripture together. We, we pray now that, that the things that you've done to help us prepare our hearts for, for worship would yield fruit as we proclaim the gospel through your, 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 your preached word. We pray for uh, our hearts to be sensitive to these truths and then not just this morning but in the, the coming uh, hours and, and days and weeks and months throughout our lives that you would help us to be obedient to these things because we're driven by our love for you. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. When I was in elementary school, there were, there were two ways of picking teams for basketball or dodgeball or whatever game we were going to play. Neither way was very enjoyable. Uh, the first way was you had two team captains and we all would, would line up and then the team captains would take turns picking a person to be a part of their team. So you, and then you, and then you, and you. And, and obviously that was not very fun. Many of you can remember this as well. It wasn't that I was, was, was picked last usually, but it was, it was uncomfortable because I wasn't sure if I was going to be picked like in the top half or the bottom half. You know, I was kind of right in that, that average. And it was always kind of that, that, that just a public recognition of where I, I fell in, in line with other people. And it was very uncomfortable. And I felt bad for the people who were picked last. The whole thing was, was very uncomfortable for me. The other way was, was also uncomfortable and very, very annoying. Uh, it was whenever a couple guys would just kind of go out there to the playground and, and four guys would say, us four versus all of you, right? And that was annoying because I was, I was never one of the us four, right? And the, the us four, they were acknowledging kind of publicly, we are the, the best four and we want only the best on our team and we are so good that the four of us can beat the, the 12 of you in dodgeball. And it was annoying because we all knew that they were right. And there'd be this, this public validation of, of how superior they were to us. Very, very frustrating. Not because of my pride, just, just justice, right? Uh, no, total pride. Yeah. Now, it was annoying, you know, kids, kids saying we, we're the best and we're going to be part of the victorious team. Now, now, fortunately, as we become adults, you know, adults don't do that like in professional basketball or things like that. They don't say us versus everybody else. But 
Sometimes those, those things still happen, I, I understand, on playgrounds. Now, now, God's kingdom, though, God's kingdom is going to be a, a victorious kingdom. God's team is going to win. There's no, there's no debate about that. There's not like, well, maybe it'll win, or maybe it'll be like a, a close game. God's kingdom is going to be absolutely and, and completely victorious. In fact, the prophet Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 40, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This, then it goes down into verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, it's God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he what? When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. That's God's relationship to the kingdoms of the world. God, God allows them to be planted. He allows them to, to grow just a little bit. And then he blows and, and kingdoms wither. No, no king, no prince. Nothing can stand before God. No kingdom. Your kingdom, my kingdom, kingdoms of the world. No kingdom can stand before God. Now, here's the amazing thing, though. God doesn't set up his kingdom in such a way where he says, okay, um, I'm going to have a kingdom, and it's going to be me and, and the best against everybody else. So I'm going to look out, and, okay, you're pretty righteous. Mm, no, uh, not you. Uh, you're, you're, you're pretty good. You're, 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 you're okay, and, and you're, you're going to be uh, not good enough, though. You're just kind of average. He doesn't say, I just want the super spiritual. What God does is exactly the opposite. He says, I'm going to establish my kingdom, and as I establish my kingdom, what am I going to do? I'm going to take the broken. I'm going to take those who are destitute. I'm going to take those who are damaged. I'm going to take those who are of no account in the eyes of the world, and I'm going to gather them to me as a loving Heavenly Father, and I'm going to establish my kingdom, and they're going to be victorious in me and in my kingdom. God invites us in his grace to be a part of his victorious kingdom, not because of our own worth, not because we're part of the, the best team, but he invites us to be a part of his kingdom solely by his grace, by his enabling power. Here's the mistake we make, though. I think we all make it, maybe not consciously, maybe sometimes consciously, but here's the mistake we make. We have God's kingdom here, and we have our kingdom. And oftentimes what we want to do is we want to say, okay, these are, my, these are my kingdom goals. Here's what I want in terms of this football game that I'm going to play. Here's what I want in terms of my professional life. Here's what I want in terms of my friends. And I recognize that I, I can't accomplish these things on my own. I recognize that God's kingdom is a victorious kingdom. But what I want is I want to somehow, and again, I may not consciously think this, I want to somehow get God's power behind my kingdom plans. I need to somehow 
convince God that, that our kingdom purposes are, are aligned. And so God's power can kind of come behind my kingdom plans, and, and my kingdom doesn't need to necessarily uh, vanish. My kingdom doesn't need to come under the control of his kingdom. We can just kind of have these, these kingdoms coexist. I can maybe put some Bible verses on a couple things, and, and then my kingdom becomes God's kingdom, and we're good to go. When I, when I was in middle school, I, I literally did this. I put like a Bible verse on my, on my tennis shoes in cross country. And I thought, well, that, you know, that, that, you know, God has to make me faster now because I'm, so I'm faster. It's like the power of God and this word is behind me, right? Bad theology as a junior higher, right? But sometimes as an adult, I, I still have that bad theology. Okay, if I just, if I just kind of pray this prayer the right way. I don't have to submit myself to God's kingdom. I know God's kingdom is going to be the victorious kingdom, but maybe somehow I can convince God that our kingdom purposes are aligned. I get the power of God behind my kingdom, and and God will exalt me in the way that I desire him to do. And I won't have to make the sacrifices that God calls me to make in order to be a part of his kingdom. I don't have to give the way that he's called me to give. I don't have to to die to myself the way that he's called me to die to myself. I don't have to do the the unpleasant things that, that it in my mind, of, of giving up this kingdom in order to lay hold of God's kingdom. But that's, that's not how it works, right? And isn't God just, isn't he just so gracious to us? He lovingly takes us and he lovingly continues to guide us into his kingdom and say, look, this is what it looks like to participate in, in my victorious kingdom. In fact, here's the, the central idea that I want us to think about this morning. As God fulfills his kingdom promises, as, as God brings his, his kingdom into being and we experience his, his vi- the victory of God's fulfilling his kingdom promises, we participate in his victorious reign. As God fulfills his kingdom promises, as he does the things that he says he's going to do, you and I are going to be able to participate in his victorious reign. And we're going to participate in his victorious reign, not as he comes alongside our kingdom and says, okay, you want this at work, you want this in your health, you want this with your children, you want this with your friends at school. We participate in that victorious reign as he brings us lovingly and says, okay, now I want you to identify with and be a part of of my kingdom Remember last week, I asked, okay, where are the, where are the 12 and unders? You know, we got some 12 and under, unders, uh, some, some kids in here, and I, I, uh, I appreciate you young people being in here. And remember last week, I said this is kind of like a, this sentence is oftentimes a key to understanding what's, what's going on in, in the text. I know some of you who are 12 and under, I, we talked about last week, some of you who are younger kids in the service, some of you like to, to draw pictures. Um, I've gotten some of your pictures before. I've got some uh, really uh, amazing pictures of me before that you guys have drawn. Appreciate that. My head's not that big, but that's okay. Um, if you're going to draw a picture this morning, maybe some of you 12-year-olds, some of you Gen Xers, uh, 40, 50-year-olds enjoy drawing, drawing pictures. Here's, here's kind of a picture you can draw that might help you understand this sentence. If you're going to draw a picture, kids, maybe, maybe you draw a picture of two castles this morning. And one castle represents God's kingdom, and the other castle represents our kingdom. Now, obviously, which castle needs to be bigger? God's, right? God's kingdom. And as we look at this chapter together, kids and Gen Xers and millennials and so forth, what we're going to see is that God calls us to leave our castle and to be a part of his castle, of his kingdom, 
And there's three things in this passage that God calls us to do by his enabling grace to participate in his victorious kingdom. And here's the first thing. Here's the first thing that we need to do in order to not be a part of our kingdom but his kingdom. The first thing that we need to do is we need to identify with the people of God. The first thing we must do to indicate our participation in God's kingdom is we need to identify with the people of God. And look at the the passage with me, if you would, chapter 5 of Joshua, and notice how the chapter begins. It says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, so they're representing all the groups that have been mentioned before there in Joshua, they, they hear what the Lord had done, and it says their hearts melted And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And so what's happening here? What's happening here is the thing that Rahab said would happen and and had happened already for the people of Jericho is happening to all the people there in the land that the people are about to conquer. They're hearing about who God is and they're fearful. They tremble. It's what Joshua said would happen and and needed to happen at the end of chapter 4. All the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The Amorites, the Canaanites, as representatives of, of this larger group of people, the seven groups of people that I mentioned so far in the book of Joshua, they recognize that God's hand, God's kingdom is mighty. And then in verses 2 through 9, God calls on the people of Israel as they're getting ready to start the battles. He calls on them to identify with him as the people of God. So that it will be abundantly clear that it's not the Israelites who are victorious, but that it's God who's victorious as they identify themselves with him. What does he tell them to do? Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, okay, you need to be circumcised. So God gives this instruction in verse 2. And in verse 3, Joshua follows that instruction exactly. They use some the, the same language. Joshua obeys the Lord. The people are circumcised. And then verse four, verses 4 through 7 describe why they needed to be circumcised, what had happened. The people had come out of Egypt in Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 4, All the men had been circumcised. They had identified with the people of God. And then there had been the disobedience in the book of Numbers. And that God had told them that they were not going to enter the promised land. That instead it was going to be their children. And now all that generation, the men of war, have died off. And now it is their children. And none of their children have been circumcised. In fact, as you read those verses, he talks about all the people of Israel have been circumcised. And then all of them died who were the men of war. And now all of their children need, all of their sons need to be circumcised. And you say, okay, why do they need to be circumcised? Why is it such a big deal? Well, remember what circumcision represented. Remember many years ago when we were in the book of Genesis, we talked about circumcision. It was in Genesis 17 that we encounter circumcision for the first time in Scripture. Abraham, he's 99 years old. And God has made a promise to Abraham. He's promised him land. He's promised him a kingdom. He's promised him descendants. He's promised him a king. And Abraham believes God. He he believes God, and God counts that belief as righteousness. He, He declares Abraham righteous, not on the basis of his works, but on the basis of his faith. He says, okay, this 
this promise is going to come to fulfillment. This starts in Genesis 12. Now, as you come to Genesis 17, God affirms that he's going to do what he promised Abraham to do. And he says, now we need a sign. And that, that sign of the covenant, that sign that I'm going to do what I told you I would do, that sign is going to be circumcision. Now, as you go through the story of Scripture and, and circumcision continues to, to come up, you, you see that the people often misunderstood what circumcision was supposed to be. Remember, circumcision was this, this sign that when a person's circumcised, they're saying, okay, I'm, I'm part of the same promise that God made to Abraham, and I'm, by faith, I'm, I'm part of the same covenant relationship that God had with Abraham. And what happened is, as the generations went on is they confused they confused the, the sign with the actual covenant. They confused the, the sign of circumcision with the actual covenant that God w- was making. So think about it this way. Imagine you have a, a two-liter bottle of, of Diet Dr. Pepper, okay? And on that two-liter two bottle of Diet Dr. Pepper, there's a, there's a wrapper around it, right? And it says Diet Dr. Pepper in that color. I don't think in colors, like, like a reddish type color. And... Um, that, that wrapper isn't Diet Dr. Pepper itself, right? It, it represents, it's, it's a sign as to what's inside it, but it's, it's not the actual substance. It's not the actual drink. The same is true of circumcision. Circumcision itself wasn't what made the, the covenant valid. It wasn't that a person who was circumcised was suddenly saved and right before God. It, it represented that heart of faith that a person was supposed to have that tied them to the the faith that Abraham had, by which God declared Abraham righteous. The people of God are are told here, look, you need to identify with me. You need to show that you're part of my covenant community. You need to be reminded that in the future I'm going to bring about this this kingdom and this this king. You need to be connected with me. Then verses 8 and 9 of here here of Joshua chapter 5. Verses 8 and 9, he talks about the results of obedience. The, results, the result of their obedience here, that they're all circumcised, and the Lord says in verse 9, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. In other words, that, that shame that you should feel for, for not yet leaving Egypt and arriving in Canaan, that, that shame I'm, I'm removing for, from you. you are, you're part of my people, and you're going to be victorious in me. That's what happens. God's people are going to be victorious through their through identification with him. So in the Old Testament, how do you identify, if you're a male, how do you identify that you're part of the people of God, part of his covenant family? You're circumcised. So God says, I wanted this to be clear as you, as you, as you begin these battles, it needs to be very clear that this is not me supporting you. This is you being part of my kingdom plan. Now, how do we think about this for ourselves, identifying with the people of God? It's important to notice here, it wasn't individuals by themselves who were called to go to Canaan. It wasn't like God said, okay, Josh, I want you to go, and then I want this individual to go, and I want you all as individuals to go and to conquer the land. That's, that's not how God work this. He said, you're, you're to go as my, as my community, as, as my people, as a covenant people. 
In other words, the, the people of God, the application, I think, for us, even as part of the church, the application is this. We must identify with, with the people of God in the way that God prescribes for us to do it. And then we pursue sanctification. We pursue God's kingdom plans with a, within a community of faith. So we, we identify with the people of God in the way that God calls us to identify with the people of God. And then we pursue sanctification, not as individuals, but as, as a community of faith. We identify ourselves with, with, with God's people. I, the people need to know, I need to publicly declare that I've, I've been a, become a part of the people of God, not on the basis of my works, but on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, the, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And then I, I need to do that. I need to publicly declare my, my union with the people of God in the way that God has prescribed for me to do. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was circumcision. And how do we do that in the New Covenant? How do we publicly identify ourselves with God's people. That's right. Baptism, right? Baptism is how it starts. We publicly identify the, the, the identifying mark of the, of the new covenant, of a person participating in the new covenant is, is baptism. We've been united with Christ through faith, and, and now we're incorporated into this, this promise that God made to Abraham, and, and uh, we, we, are, we identify with that through baptism. Galatians chapter 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is a, a public profession that we are part of God's people through faith. It signifies the cleansing, the forgiveness, the union we have with Christ, with one another, the new life we have in Christ. This morning, right, we had a, a baptism service. And people stood up and proclaimed their faith in Jesus Christ. They, they publicly declared their union with Christ. And then we do that, we do all that, and, and we, are, we identify ourselves with the people of God, not just at one moment, not just the moment of baptism, but we continue to do that, and we continue to pursue sanctification, now within the context of the, the community that we're publicly identified with. There are promises, there are promises that God has made to us, not on the basis not on the basis of us just as individuals, but the promises that God has made to you are promises that he's made to you with the understanding that you're pursuing those promises within a covenant community, within a church. Does that make sense? Here's another way to think about it. There are no promises, be careful I say this, <laughs> there are no promises that God has made to you that are not somehow connected to your participation within, within the church, within the people of God. In other words, you're, you're not going to get to the end of, of your life and make it to heaven and, and say, I, I did it, you know, by myself, it's, it's me. And God, you know, God said, well, what about those who are with you? You know, you know what, what people? You know, the, an individual victory is, is not the victory that God describes in Scripture. When I was, um, I was in, Maybe it's elementary school. It had to have been elementary school, like young, young, young age. Um, I was at a neighbor's house, and I saw about 15 seconds of the uh, movie Rambo. Okay, like Rambo, first or second blood. I can't remember which which one. I don't know which one it was, but it it terrified. It was like a picture of uh, it was that 
scene where Sylvester Stallone is getting tortured, you know, and uh, I can just remember watching that going, oh my goodness, and mom seeing me go, let's go this way. Um, so I don't know the whole story. I've been scarred ever since, uh, so I haven't seen the whole Rambo movie, but it's, I understand the idea of, of it being a, an individual who kind of takes on a, a larger group just by himself. That's, that's not what a Christian life is. A Christian life is not some Rambo movie where we as individuals take on the world. God has called us to identify with his people. And all the promises that God has for us in Scripture, sometimes we individualize them. And there are some aspects of those promises that are received individually. But even as we receive them individually, we're receiving them individually as people who are part of a community of faith. If we are going to rightly leave our kingdom and participate in God's kingdom, God's victorious kingdom, we must die to self and identify ourselves publicly with the people of God. And as the people of Israel get ready to go into the land, as they're in their land and get ready to engage in conquering the land, that's the first thing they do. Now here's the second thing we need to do by God's grace. We need to not just identify with the people of God, we need to receive with the people of God. And what do we receive as a people of God? Well, receive God's grace. We need to understand that we are receiving with the people of God as we fulfill the promises that God has for us, as we live the lives that God has called us to live. So you come into verse 10 and and look at what we read next. So the people are there and they're encamped at Gilgal, and it says they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. The day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land. Now, now what's happening here? The people are celebrating the Passover. Only circumcised uh, people can participate in the Passover. It's necessary, and now they've done that. They've fulfilled that. They're in obedience, and so now they can celebrate the Passover, and that's what they're doing. Now, what's the Passover? Keep your fingers there in Joshua. You can turn back to the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 12, remember the people of Israel are in Egypt, and God is about to deliver them in a, in a mighty way. There's about to be this, this final plague, that the death of the firstborn, and you come into Exodus chapter 12, and the Passover is instituted. The Lord says to Moses at the beginning of chapter 12, he says, this month, verse 2, shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you, and tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb, listen to the description of the lamb in verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats." And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. In verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is 
Yahweh's, it is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the All the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. The blood, the blood of the lamb shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What did the Passover lamb represent? The Passover lamb's blood represented God taking the penalty for the people. And them receiving God's grace and not the wrath that they deserved. What is God calling the people to do here in Joshua chapter 5? He's calling them to celebrate the Passover. To publicly recognize that they are people who need to receive God's grace. The Passover was designed to remind the people year after year that they were recipients of God's grace, that God in his grace had taken the blood of a lamb instead of the blood of their firstborn. The people here, as they prepare to go in the land, are reminded, look, you need to understand if you're going to be part of God's kingdom, you need to receive with the people of God. You need to receive God's grace as God's people. They enjoy the produce of the land. They enjoy the the, the means by which God provides for them, providing for them what they do not deserve. I don't know um, how many times I'm allowed to quote from the same book. Like, I know there's some sort of limitation, and, you know, if you quote from the same book too many times, uh, eventually people just start yelling out, stop doing that. I'm hoping I have another quote here. Uh, I've quoted from this book frequently over the last uh, six months or so, but uh, the book Les Mis, uh, I was was reading a little bit more of it on vacation, very slowly making my way through it. there's, this, there's a scene in the book that struck me as, as reading on vacation. There's a scene where uh, Fontaine has, has, has come almost to the end of her life. She's lived this, this uh, very, very tragic life, this tragic figure, and now she's in trouble with the law. And so she stands before, in, in this scene, she stands before two men. One is Javert. He's the police inspector, and, and he's the one who has arrested her. And she's standing before him. And then the other man that she is standing before is is the mayor, Jean Valjean. And these two men in the story represent law and grace. The police inspector Javert represents the law. And Jean Valjean represents grace. And she blames Jean Valjean wrongly for her finding herself in this predicament and she in the in the scene she keeps on appealing to the law instead of appealing to grace she keeps on appealing to to the law to Javert and and there's this very powerful scene where she she looks at Valjean and blaming him for her predicament she she literally spits in his face she spits at grace and she continues to plead with the law she wants the law to find her acceptable. It's just this very, very tragic, very powerful scene. And after she spits in his face, Jean Valjean, we read, he, he wiped his face 
And again, he says, Inspector Javert set this woman at liberty. Give her liberty. And then he, he turns to this, this woman, Fantine, and he, and he says, as he hears about the, the terrible things that she's undergone, he says, I knew nothing of, of what you've told me, and I believe that everything you're saying is true. And then he, he looks at her and he says, why did you not apply to me? When you found yourself destitute, when you found yourself in danger, why did you just not appeal to me, to, to, to grace? But now, listen to what he says to her. He says, I, I, will, I will pay your debts. I will have your child come to you or you shall go to her. You shall live here at Paris or, or where you will. I take charge of your child and you. You shall do no more what? No more work. No more labor. If you do not wish to, I will give you all the money that you need. You shall again become honest and becoming happy. And more than that, listen, I declare to you from this moment, if all is as you say, and I do not doubt it, that you have never ceased to be virtuous and holy before God. What, what's that scene conveying? That's the message of grace. The message of grace is that there's no more labor for you to do. Stop appealing to the law. Stop trying to find yourself acceptable by, by works of the law, by works of your own righteousness, and just simply receive the grace that I, I have for you. And God in his, his mount, bountifulness, uh, in, his, um, in, his, in his boundless mercy, looks at us and says, okay, all that you need, I will give you. You will find in me all that you could possibly need or desire. I will, I will give it to you. You will find all joy in me. And what's more, and this is the amazing thing that God tells us as we, as we flee our sinking kingdom and come to his kingdom receiving his grace, God tells us more than that, I declare to you, despite your sin, despite where you find yourself as, as destitute, as lost, I declare to you that you are righteous. Not on the basis of your own pitiful efforts at earning righteousness, but you are righteous because I declare you righteous by the blood of my Son, and it is as if you have never sinned. How much more power is there in that message than a message that I'm going to continue along in my own little pitiful kingdom and ask God to kind of give me a little energy to do those things? How much better is it for me to say, this, this kingdom stinks. <laughs> this kingdom is, is death. I'm going to flee this kingdom. I'm going to identify myself with the people of God and his kingdom. And now I'm just going to bask here in the grace of God and receive with the people of God. It's a beautiful picture here of the Passover, right? If, if baptism for the believer is what circumcision was for the old covenant in, in some ways, now we see that the the Lord's Supper that we take together is a new covenant, a manifestation of the, the Passover here. In the 
baptism testimony that she gave, Olivia mentioned Jesus as, as the Lamb of God. And, and that's what we proclaim together as we come together and partake the Lord's Supper, that, that God is, has provided the Passover Lamb, Jesus. And we, as we receive the, the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming to ourselves and to each other that Christ is our Passover Lamb, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We receive grace. We don't earn it. The victory must be God's. Here's the third thing I want us to think about. As we think about being a part of God's victorious kingdom, what God calls us to do to identify with him, to, to receive his grace, we need to submit with the people of God, right? We need to submit with the people of God. There's this very strange scene that the chapter closes with. Here's Joshua, and perhaps he's nervous, perhaps he's, he's thinking about the the coming difficulties of this conquering that God has called them to. And he's, he's by Jericho thinking about the battle to come, and he, he lifts up his eyes, and, and what does he see? He sees this, this man with a sword drawn, and Joshua goes to him, and he asks a very logical question. Um, <laughs> whose side are you on? Because it would be super if we could get you on our side, right? And the response of this one with his sword drawn is a response that each of us needs to hear as we think about God's kingdom and our participation in it. The one with his sword drawn says, he asks, are you on our side or their side or their side or our side? He says, no, no, I'm not. I'm not on either losing side. I'm not on either pitiful kingdom's side. I, I'm, on, I'm on God's side. I'm part of, I'm part of God's army, the, the host. Now, this, this phrase that he uses, host, it's a it's a phrase we see to describe God over 250 times in the Old Testament. He's, he's describing here the, the one to come. I believe here this is a picture of, of Jesus Christ standing before Joshua, the, the pre-incarnate Messiah. He stands there as, and, and Joshua's seen the, the presence of the Lord, the, the pre-incarnate Son of God, the, the Lord of hosts. And Joshua responds the only right way that a person can respond to God. He shuts his mouth, he falls on his face to the earth, and he worships. And then he says, what do you want me to do? What does my Lord say to his servant? You're God. You're in charge. I'm not. What should I do? He doesn't say, okay, look, uh, that's great. I'm so glad you're here because we have got some plans. And, you know, I'm, I'm open to some suggestions, but I'm thinking doing this, and, and you know, I know it's kind of your goal too, so let's, let's do this thing together. I would really like to be victorious. You're really powerful. Let's, let's, let's join forces. Joshua says, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Joshua understands that this is, this is God's 
kingdom. This is God's battle. This is, this is his victory. And the only right way for you and I to respond is we, as we recognize that we want to be a part of God's kingdom. The only right way to respond is say, okay, God, here, here's all my stuff. Here, here, here's everything. Now, now you tell me what do you desire me to do with my schooling, with my career, with my family, with my athletic abilities. You tell me what you desire, and I am going to submit to you and your call on my life. When I was in high school and a few years beyond, there was this big controversy in the evangelical world. Maybe, maybe you've heard of it. It was really big in the Dallas area especially, but the question that some people were asking is, do you have to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life in order to be saved? It's called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. And some people were saying this. They were saying, look, um, you should make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. But to say that you must make, you must make Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, that's, that's adding works to salvation. And no one can do that perfectly anyway. So you don't need to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord to be saved. In fact, Whitney and I, when we were dating and right after we got married, we were at a church. I worked at a church that was, that was teaching that. And I, I told them, I said, you know, I, I told the leadership, I said, I, I don't think that's the right way to understand salvation. As a person comes and beholds Jesus Christ and responds to the gospel by believing in him, they have to understand that he's Lord. If you don't understand that Jesus Christ is Lord, who are you believing in? Just like a nice guy with good teaching? I didn't understand what they meant. They said, well, you know what? We're really just kind of saying the same thing because none of us are saying you shouldn't make Jesus Christ Lord. We're just saying you don't, you don't have to. But what does Jesus himself say? Jesus tells, tells us that even just mouthing the words, Lord, Lord, aren't enough for a person to enter heaven. He says, it's, it's the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. In other words, the person who recognizes my lordship and places my faith in me and by God's grace receives salvation and then lives out the, the life that I've called them to, to live by my enabling grace. One theologian puts it this way, there are 7,776 references to divine lordship and the obviously central roles it plays in the biblical story. The main problem is that we live in a world obsessed by autonomy with, with us having rights over our own lives. As with Adam and Eve in the garden, people today do not want to bow the knee to someone other than themselves. And that is certainly my problem, and I'll graciously assume it's your problem as well. God's lordship confronts and opposes us from the outset. God's lordship demands our recognition that all things belong to him and are subject to his control and authority. He concludes that demand is unacceptable to people who are outside of Christ and to some extent even believers chafe when the demand is clearly made. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's continue to bow the knee to God and his absolute lordship over our lives. Is God for Baptists or the Methodists? Is God for America or China? Is God for Morton or Metamora or Washington or East Peoria or Peoria or Pekin? Or is God for the Republicans or the Democrats? No. 
He's not. He's not for you. He's not for your enemy. He's not for the other person in work, place who makes life difficult. God is for none of those people. God is for God. For our good and his glory. And if we're to participate in our kingdom, if we're to participate in his kingdom rightly, we don't say, God, come alongside my kingdom and let's, let's get rid of all those jerks together that are making my kingdom difficult. We say, God, I'm submitting with you. I recognize the absolute lordship of your son, Jesus Christ, and I submit to you. I'm identifying with your people through faith in your son, Jesus. I'm receiving your boundless grace, and now I'm submitting to you in whatever you call me to do, as you and your grace enable me to do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're the God who fulfills your kingdom promises and allows us to participate in your kingdom by your kindness to us today, we pray you would help us to be obedient, help us to leave our kingdoms and to pursue you, to identify with your people, to receive your grace, to submit to you as our Lord. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.